0: A long time ago, in a land far, far away, there lived a man by the name of Cyrus. In 550 BC, Cyrus, king of Anshan, conquered Acmetha and inherited the vast kingdom of the Medes, the rivals of Babylonia. Four years later, he defeated Croesus, king of Lydia, and captured its capital at Sardis. In 539 BC, he entered Babylon without even a fight as the restorer of the ancient worship of Marduk. Cyrus defeated Babylon and in, 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 in founded what was to be known at the time as the largest empire the ancient East had ever known. His son Cambyses conquered Egypt. Cambyses' successor, Darius or Darius, reached India, divided the empire into provinces or satraps, 127 in all. Darius then reached beyond Egypt to Libya, then pressed northward where he did not experience the success that he had witnessed eastward and westward. He met the Siths who drove him back. Then he pressed northwestward towards Greece. Ionia was already under his control, but they broke free and joined their Aegean brothers against Persia. Darius was defeated by the Athenians in the Battle of Marathon and was forced to retreat, but was determined to return with more troops to obliterate them. But Egypt began another uprising uh, which caused uh, plenty of difficulties for him and that he had to deal with that. Darius died in 486, 485 BC, but not before leaving it in the well-prepared hands of his son Xerxes, Xerxes I the Xerxes had to deal with Egypt which took up a whole bunch of his time but after he had gotten that taken care of he set about finishing his royal palace in Shush- Shushan or Susa not to be confused with the uh, the author of many of the musical songs that will be played tomorrow uh, John Phillips I, I don't know I, I don't I don't think there's a relation or a connection Shushan is east of Babylonia. Well, as most of you are aware, the direction we're coming now uh, in terms of history, three years into his reign, around 484, 483 B.C., Xerxes decided it's time to party. It's time to party. And that's what he did. He set up a major, major party. Let's, Let's look at it in Esther 1, in the book of Esther which takes place in the the 480s uh, BC and as as we reflect upon our our history of of the southern kingdom Judah uh, with uh, Benjamin along with it and several from the tribe of Levi were of course uh, shipped off to Babylon those who were not killed many many were shipped to Babylon but were permitted by Cyrus to return. And we have stories uh, listed in in the Old Testament of the restoration of the temple, and uh, Nehemiah's stories, Ezra's stories, all of those that that bring us here to the 480s BC, some, uh, what, uh, 30, 40 years after uh, that time period. So so here they are. uh, There are Jews that are back in uh, Jerusalem and back in that land. but at the same time, there was a different story going on back at the capital of this incredible, incredibly large kingdom and powerful kingdom, the most powerful kingdom uh, in, that, in that region of the world uh, at that time. Esther 1 verse 4. Well, let's go to verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces before him. Uh, Josephus talks about tens of thousands of people brought in and gathered for this incredible event, uh, this, this party that he threw says here that in verse 4, that when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for for many days, 180 days in all. Uh, A little bit of math, uh, 30 days in a month, six months of a party. I just, I cannot fathom that, Uh, but a major, major party. Josephus also talks about all of the, uh, the the, uh, the details with which they, they did that and the great splendor that uh, was exhibited uh, for, during that time. Let's look here. So he says in verse five, when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting another seven days. Uh, 180 days was not quite enough. Let's, let's push this for another s- seven days. For all the people were present in Shushan, the citadel from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white, and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. And, and, but then also, in accordance with the law, the, the drinking was not compulsory. It wasn't mandatory that you drink and continue drinking and drink and drink. It was not compulsory, uh, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. But on the seventh day, things... uh, they hit a major bump in the road uh, during, during this time. And most of us are familiar with this story, but let's read it. When the king's heart was merry with wine, he commanded uh, me human, that's a caveman for a human being. Uh, no, I, 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 I can't read that without saying me human, me, I human, uh, me, me human, I'll say that, me human. Uh, the king was merry, he commanded mehuman. human Uh, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king. And he he told them to bring Queen Vashti before the, the king wearing her royal crowns in order to show her beauty to the people and to the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So he wanted to bring this time, to bring bring her in front of everyone. We've, we've had an incredible party. We've had another seven days of feasting. As the, To top it all off, I'm going to bring out the queen for you to actually see her beauty in all of her splendor. Now, different folks uh, state different things about, uh, about what could be going on here. And, and as we know the story, uh, Queen Vashti in verse 12 refused to come at the king's command. Josephus mentions it in Antiquities of the Jews, stating that one of the reasons or, or maybe the chief reason that she didn't do that was because there was also a law in, in the law of the Medes and Persians which said that the, the wife of, of another should not be uh, presented in the presence of strangers uh, in the land. I, I I don't know. I don't know if that was it. Maybe she was thinking, "This is the law. His heart's merry with wine." I know he's saying this. This is this is what the law is. No, I'm not going to do it. Maybe she was just being, a bit of a rebel and saying, "I'm not I'm not going to do what he wants to say. I'm not going to parade myself out there in whatever form that he wants to, to parade." I don't know. But the bottom line was, she didn't obey the king's order. And this is a Gentile kingdom, uh, and and that really really infuriated the king, as we see in verse 12. His anger burned within him. So the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and just, justice. Though these advisers that were closest to him, these seven princes of Persia and Media, that, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom, you know, verse 15, well, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the, the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. So, Memu Khan uh, answered before the king and the princes, 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 Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of, the, of King Ahasuerus be, because the queen's behavior will become known to all women. Well, of course, she was with this uh, a large group of women that had come in and were there, and they were, they were having their own party. Uh, every one of them would know immediately that she denied the king's... Uh, command to come before him. That goes out to the lands. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, we're going to have trouble in River City. We're going to have major, major problems here in, uh, in anarchy because we can't get the women to behave us as husbands. Uh, so anyway, this, this, is, this is really serious business. So he says uh, there will be excessive contempt at the verse, uh, verse 18 and wrath uh, if this were to take place. So they bring up an idea in verse 9. If it pleases the king, let a decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the, of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and the king uh, will give her royal position to another who is better than she. And when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all of his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. So the reply pleased the king, and that's what they did. Josephus mentions that uh, as a result of this, uh, uh, that uh, King Xerxes I, Ahasuerus, uh, greatly loved his wife and uh, was deeply grieved at, at losing her as his wife, and it greatly troubled him, and as a result, they came forward uh, with this other uh, proposition for him. And again, another Gentile kingdom here, and a proposition that obviously is not a godly one, but... Uh, The king in his carnality, uh, of course, said this pleases him. Verse two of chapter two, the king's servants who attended the king said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, uh, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the uh, king's eunuch, custodian of the women and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And of course, this thing pleased the king and he did so. So then they have an inset uh, statement here about uh, individuals that will begin to be a part of the story and actually be the the protagonists in this story. In Shushan, verse 5, the citadel there was a certain Jew. This, This Jew's name was Mordecai. He was a Jew, but he was a Benjamite, as verse five says. They were the Benjamins, uh, Benjamins, the Benjamins, the Benjaminians, the Benjamites were there uh, with the Jews in the southern kingdom, and as a result, were were considered part of the Jews, but he was the son of Kish. and and Kish verse six had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured uh, with Jeconiah. Jeconiah was one of the, the forerunners of, of, of kings before the final king Zedekiah. There in five eighties, five nineties, when when these various kings were there, uh, carried away in different captivities to to uh, to Babylon. So his family had been carried off to Babylon uh, at that time, and of course. Uh, and and it appears that they had continued to stay there even though many had had gone back although he was in that region around there not particularly in uh there at 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 that particular time but just outside but let's continue so uh he says and then uh, and mordecai had verse 7 had brought up hadassah that is esther his uncle's daughter for she had neither father nor, nor mother. This young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." You know, I always, always think of the, in a sense, the, the older cousin here, but, but I, I think of this as a father and daughter here in, in the way that uh, he raised her, in the way that she esteemed and admired uh, this, this relative who took her in in that capacity. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, verse 8, when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, uh, that Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty prepara- gave her uh, beauty preparations besides her allowance. She was also given seven choice maidservants uh, from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Verse 11 Every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned: 6 months with oil of myrrh, 6 months with perfumes, perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. I mean, can you imagine that? I, I'm trying, a year, a year to prep, but you've got the six-month pure regimen, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the myrrh, uh, and, and also the six months of the perfume regimen uh, for doing that. And lest our, lest our, our ladies here in the congregation uh, be somewhat discouraged that their husbands have not provided them uh, with that kind of time, which they deserve uh, for, for that, uh, keep your finger there or uh, uh, in the book of Esther, and let's turn over to Song of Solomon. Some of you are way ahead of me. Uh, Song of Solomon. We don't quote Song of Solomon, do we? Uh, that, all that often, but uh, we we will we will today. Uh, I actually read Song of Solomon uh, this week. It was. It was a a good read, a a beautiful read of romantic love. We've got uh, how many couples? Four, four couples in in our area here uh, that are getting married here before the feast. So anyway, since I'm counseling with them in those areas, I figured I better uh, stay sharp on Song of Solomon. Uh, Anyway, so let's go to uh, Song of Solomon 1, verse five. The Shulamite, uh, the the woman who was to marry, Again, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, I I see it as as Solomon himself. But uh, she's she's to marry him, and she says says this in uh, uh, verse verse five, Song of Solomon one verse five, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Keter like the curtains of Solomon, but do not look upon me because I am dark because the sun has tanned me. You know, she's been out working. She hasn't had the six months of perfumes, the six months of myrrh. She's been out working in the fields. In fact, uh, she says the reason why it happened is my mother's sons were angry with me, so they made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard in terms of of my own uh, beauty and all of the things that I would have needed to do uh, have not been kept. I've not been able to primp and take special care uh, uh, in my appearance. But she was by no means, of course, unkempt. Verse seven, tell me you whom I love where you feed your flock. Uh, This is she's saying to her beloved. Uh, where you make it uh, rest at, at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? And then the beloved says to her, he says, if you do not know, O fairest among women. Yes, he's been out in the fields working, but he sees her as the fairest among women. Follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. In fact, that, I use that frequently with Lisa this week. Uh, you are my filly among Pharaoh's chariots, and she greatly appreciates that. Uh, anyway, I've not, I've not uh, tried that one. Maybe I'll try that at some point next week, we'll see. It'll be a surprise, I'm sure, since I brought it up here in the service. Uh, okay, so, uh, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. So he beheld his uh, wife and, and saw her incredible beauty, even though she was working in the field. So coming back to the story, let's go back to Esther 1. Uh, Actually, actually, let's pick it up now uh, as we were were in Esther 2. Let's go back now to verse 13. So Esther 2, verse 13. So thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. So in the evening she would go in, the morning she returned, uh, To the second house of the women to the custody of of the king's eunuch who kept the concubine she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name okay so now it comes time for esther's turn again in a gentile kingdom this is not the way that that god uh, sets up marriage for sure but this is the way the gentile kingdom did things now when the turn came for esther the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of mordecai who had taken her as his daughter To go into the king, she requested nothing but what the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the tenth month, in the seventh month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen, instead of Vashti. So we have a feast. We have a celebration tomorrow in our nation. They had a feast. It was called the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the in in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king as almost a, as, a, as an inset here, which becomes very important later, the next few verses there, 19 through 23, talk about how at one time uh, Mordecai finds out about a couple of eunuchs that are, are attempting to assassinate the king. And I, he passes that on uh, to Queen Esther. Queen Esther informs the king And verse 23 says, when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed and both were hanged on a gallows and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Josephus mentions it this way. He says that uh, while there was a note made about that and it was noted and it was noted in front of the king, he saw that they did nothing about it at the time. Other things going on, whatever, but it was just simply noted but we see a new person come on the scene in Esther 3, Haman. Let's look at uh, this this situation of Haman. Uh, Esther 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So this individual was, in in a sense, if there was a, a person that filled that role, he was Pretty much second in the kingdom. Very powerful, uh, influential position that, that uh, Haman uh, began to take on. And, and they all paid homage to Haman, for so the king commanded concerning him. So pay homage to this individual when he goes by. Mordecai would not bow. He would not you know, bow his head or go down on one knee or pay any homage uh, to this individual. Now, you know, we know that we're to esteem, other, esteem others higher than ourselves, but what was his reason for doing so? I think many of us know, know the story, but part of it was because this guy was an Amalekite. And God, back in uh, Deuteronomy 25, had told the Israelites to wipe all of them out. Uh, wipe, take them all out because they seek your, uh, your downfall. They, they attack them. Uh, and, and a vicious group. And they did not take all of them out over, over time uh, and, and dealt with the, the after effects of that. And here is one of the after effects. Uh, he is here in this role doing that. And because of what God said to do to those people, because of their mindset, uh, Mordecai was not going to bow to this individual or pay him homage. The king's servant, verse 3, who were uh, servants who were with the king's uh, gate. Within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? The king has said to do this. Why aren't you doing it? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, Uh, not uh, his best friends here. Uh, For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he still disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone because he had better intentions in uh, in mind. They had had told him of the people of Mordecai. So Haman instead sought to destroy all the Jews. I'm gonna develop a scheme here to destroy all of the Jews throughout the entire Persian kingdom. I'm going to take them all out. Second in the kingdom, I can work this and make this happen, these people of Mordecai. So he begins that process uh, and, and does so in an interesting way with the casting of lots uh, to determine the day and the month uh, when they would enact this. So it fell on the day that is mentioned here. And uh, Haman then starts to lay out this story to King Ahasuerus. There's a certain people, verse 8, they're scattered and they're dispersed among the people. Uh, In all these provinces of your kingdom, you know, their laws are different from all other peoples and they don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain, not let them remain in the land of the living, take them out, kill them all, slaughter them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I, in fact, you know what? I'm going to. I'm willing to pay ten thousand talents of silver out of my own coffers uh, to put into the king's treas- treasuries to make this so. Now, uh, Josephus said that ah, it, it, uh, the king did not accept that uh, money. He decided to enact it anyway. Don't know if what was the case on that, but he says. The king took his signet ring, very important, uh, signifying that it, that it comes from, from his edict, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. So they set this up that this is when this was going to happen. And they hastened to get that ball rolling. So now let's look at uh, Esther 4 and read this chapter. Mordecai learned of this. And when when he learned that all had happened, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the midst of the city and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. He came all the way up to the gate, the front of the king's gate, for no one could enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth, but he was crying and and wailing about the, the future of the Jews. In every province where the king's command and degree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. I think most here in the congregation are realize, realize that the, the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but God is very much a, a center part of this as we see uh, the fasting and the weeping and wailing that's taking place they're, they're appealing to God. They're humbling themselves before God, asking for God to, to show mercy upon the people. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her and she was distressed, what is going on? Uh, Gave uh, garments to clothe Mordecai, uh, but he would not accept them. Queen Esther called Hathach, uh, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend to her and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square. They got the information. Mordecai told him all that happened and uh, what what was going to happen to the Jews. He gave him a copy of the written decree and he brings it to Esther. Uh, So then it says at the end of verse 9 that uh, with respect to uh, Mordecai, that he wanted to show it to Esther and explain to her that he might command her. He wanted to command Esther to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Esther spoke the words and gave him a command for Mordecai. And, and, and then said all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called he has but one law put all to death except the king holds out the scepter that the person may live even if I as the queen go in before him if I go before him and, and I have not been called and he is not in a good mood it's not a good thing for me I'm dead uh, so you know, you know this Mordecai and then Mordecai said to her, probably the key verse in this, pa- in this whole book, he told Esther's, uh, told Mordecai Esther's words. Mordecai told them to answer Esther in this way. Don't think that your heart will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, yet who knows whether you, Esther, have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther then told them to reply to Mordecai in this way, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me now, neither eat or drink for three days, night or day, my maids and I will fast likewise. I don't know, I don't, I won't ask for a show of hands if any of you here have fasted for three days and three nights. I never have. i I did about a day and a half once, so I've not even done two days. But to to imagine that they would take that time and and say a three-day and three-night fast. Pretty amazing for for all the people. Uh, And uh, by the way, I've not fasted 40 days and 40 nights either uh, of yet. So anyway, uh, saying here, Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded. So she devises a plan and we know that plan but first she had to get into the king. I just want to read a a brief excerpt here from Antiquities of the Jews from Josephus. He makes this statement now as she preps uh, to go before the king. Accordingly Esther made supplication to God after the manner of her country by casting herself down upon the earth and putting on her mourning garments, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and bidding farewell to meat and drink and all delicacies for three days' time. And she entreated her God to have mercy on her and make her words appear persuasive to the king and render her countenance more beautiful than it was before, that by both her words and beauty she might succeed for the averting of the king's anger in case he were at all irritated against her and for the consolation of those of her own country. Now... They were in the utmost danger of perishing. We know the story. We know what happens next. We know the, the way she sets up a banquet, and, and Haman gets really excited because of all the people in all the land that, uh, that she could possibly invite. She invites the one person. She invites Haman. So it's just the three of them uh, enjoying this meal. What an, what an honor that uh, that has, has come upon her that that come upon him that he would be in that in that state and of course it's fitting for me i'm i'm second i'm second in the kingdom anyway let's look at at this passage here that discusses this esther 6 and i think of different times when, when we go through issues in our life, lives as, as we look at major things that are arising that we just do not see a way out of. And we pray and ask for God's guidance, ask for God's intervention, and we'll, we'll fast and seek his will. And it's, it's amazing the things, I think, in my life of the things that God God wanted me to do and there were things that only God could do and this is another example and I think all of us can can cite things in our lives where God took care of something and came at something from a completely different angle to intervene for us than we even even thought possible and here is is uh, no exception to that because here he is uh, getting ready to have you know the uh, the banquet and we've got uh, banquets being set up, and then, you know, come back again, and come back again, and and here, so before this last banquet of, of the three of them, that night, the king just couldn't sleep. He couldn't sleep, so he, he's, you know, to, to pass the time, it was commanded, verse 1, to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. God did that. We know that. God designed that to happen. He troubled him, <laughs> so he couldn't sleep, and, and he influenced him to, to ask for the book of the records, and here it is, and in the portion of their reading this to him, it was found written that Mordecai, Mordecai of all individuals, had told of Big Thana and, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, well, what, are, what do we do for Mordecai? I did for, for such a, uh, an incredible thing that he's done to save my life. What have we done for him? The king's service, uh, servants who attended him said, "Well, well, nothing's been done for him. So the king said, well, who's in the court? Who's, who's here in the court? Well, Haman had just entered uh, another timing. I wonder what, what happened in God's direction to cause Haman to have a thought to go into this area at this time, uh, to enter the outer court at that time. And uh, so, uh, and, and here, of course, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Incredible timing here. So the king's servants said to him, well, there's Haman. He's there standing in the court. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's bring him on. So come on over here. So Haman comes in and the king asks him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman thought in his heart, well, whom could the king be delighting in if it more, than, more than me? Haman answered the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal lobe be brought, a royal lobe, a royal earlobe, sorry about that, a royal robe, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king is ridden, a royal crest placed on its head. Then let his robe and the horse be delivered into the hand of one of the, most, the king's most noble princes, that he might array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city. And, and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king said to Haman, wow, very good idea. Hurry, hurry! take the robes and the horses you suggested, do all that and, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Oh, no, 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 whoa, whoa, what's happening here? So he says uh, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house and he was mourning. So, you know, he went and did all that he told him to do. Mordecai, after he did that, he rushes back to, uh, back to his house. He's mourning. He's, his head is covered. He tells his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that happened to him, uh, his wise men. And, uh, so, and, uh, and then Zeresh, his wife, says to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have uh, begun to fall, is, uh, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, uh, but you will surely fall before him. She was a prophetess in this, in this manner. Uh, she said, no, she wasn't a prophetess, but she told him, hey, hey, this is going to happen. It's not going to be good for you. Actually, you're going to fall, and you'll probably be very dead. Uh, so tough words to hear from his wife, but it was the truth. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So imagine the, the reversal of fortune, and here he is now at this, this banquet, at, at the end of it all. So he, he, uh, he's there, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's built these gallows to, to hang uh, Mordecai, and then he's at the banquet, and here comes Esther to make this uh, statement where she drops, uh, drops the bomb. On, on the king and also uh, puts down the hammer, in a sense, on, on uh, Haman. Verse 3 of chapter 7, Queen Esther answered and said, because he was so thankful for this incredible banquet that she had put on, you can have up to half the kingdom. So she answered and said, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. So he's, you'd think he's perplexed by this. For we have been sold, my, my people and I, we've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been slaves, I would have held my tongue. Uh, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So king answered, what, what, are you, what, what are you talking about? Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, that adversary and, and enemy is this wicked Haman. And she point, I, I pointed to a blank area right there. I was not at either of you two. So anyway, so that area right there where that little white uh, three-by-five card is, where nobody's sitting, but it's that wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified. The king was so upset he went out and walked out in the courtyard, walked away. And then here comes Haman pleading before the the, the queen. He's right there at her couch, uh, begging for her. And then then the king comes in and sees him in that state, and he says uh, to Haman in verse middle of verse eight. Uh, Will he also assault the queen whom I, at, who's in my house while I'm in the house? Is he that brazen? And they came and put a bag over his face immediately and hauled him off. Just an amazing reversal of fortune, an amazing uh, turn of events. And as the word left the king's mouth, as, as I said, they, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbunah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, <laughs> Out of the blue, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. A uh, little bit of a hint there, isn't it? And it uh, didn't take the king very long to pick up on that hint. So the king said, hang him, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Thus ended the influence of Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Amalekite. We won't read the rest of the account, but it but describes what happens uh, happened in the intervening events. Esther's petitions for her people were granted. They enacted another law. They didn't remove that law, but they enacted another law which permitted the Jews to uh, defend themselves uh, uh, very powerfully and helped them uh, to do that. And 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 elicited uh, others or solicited others support to help them. So, of course, uh, the Jews were spared. In fact, the enemies of, of the Jews were killed. Mordecai took the place of Haman as Xerxes' uh, most trusted, second in command. And uh, there was an interesting entry in, by Josephus, but let's read the, the passage here in, in Esther 8 about what happened as a result of this. Of course, Haman died and uh, and all of these adversaries of the Jews throughout the kingdom uh, were, were also put out of commission. And notice how it's, it's listed about the outcome of all of this. I found this interesting, uh, looking as, as these letters that, that he sent out that the kings can, could not, uh, that the, the Jews could not only defend themselves, but also gather together, to protect their lives, destroy, kill, and annihilate anybody that would come against them. Verse 12, Uh, Esther 8 verse 12, on one day in all the provinces of of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar when this happened, the copy of the document was to be issued as a decree. So it was issued that they could avenge their enemies. Verse 14, the couriers who rode on royal horses went out hastened and, and pressed on by the king's command and the king and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. Verse 15: So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel. Uh, here he was in sackcloth uh, outside at the gate, fasting and praying and humbling himself before God. He goes out in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the whole city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. We're not talking about only the Jews, we're talking about the, all of the people as well, when they saw and, and realized what, what had happened, that justice had been served, that uh, a person who was a godly, righteous man and, and a good man and a faithful man who had defended the king uh, was now put in, put in a, a position of authority and an evil, uh, wicked man had been destroyed. And the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. It's, it's, it's great when we can have light, to, to be light of heart and, and, and gladness and joy of honor and honor. And in every province and, and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. So, the Jews went from a situation about, to, about being to be destroyed to where it was almost like a millennial situation where it says in the millennium, people will grab on the sleeve, sleeve of a Jewish man to say, tell us about this way of the Lord. We, we want to learn that way. It-, it-, it turned like that in the middle of a, of a kingdom, one of the major Gentile uh, kingdoms of, of the, the great empires of the world that are talked about in prophecy. It turned in, in such a way that in a sense, they were grabbing a hold of the Jewish uh, man, seeing the, the degree to which the influence that they had in that situation. I submit a, a small type, only a physical type, of what will happen in the millennium as, uh, as God works through those people again to spread that news out to the entire world. Interesting how that happened. Well, what Josephus says, he kind of goes the next step because what happens when you become a Jew for the men you get circumcised. So not only are, are they be, uh, becoming Jews in a sense, what he's saying is, is all these people for, for fear, they're all out getting circumcised. You know, they're all, they're all because of oh this, we need to, we need to be, make sure that we're in good stead with Mordecai and the Jews because of, of the authority that they now have. Uh, so quite a, a turn of events. So, and from that, we've got the Feast of Purim, the the Jews' own uh, national holiday, a time of thanksgiving, a time of deliverance. I'd like to uh, move to the next portion of our message today and talk about some lessons learned from the story of Esther. I wanted to read it. I just, you know, I, you, I, I could have just told the story, but God's word is is so beautiful in the way, such a literary work and and in the way that he's caused it to be recorded and and so many beautiful, powerful stories, and, and this is certainly one that, that deserves to be read, and it deserves to be read in its entirety, uh, and I would encourage you to do so to, to uh, add in some of the details, but let's, let's uh, move forward now in our message and, and deal with some of the, the, the key issues or the key lessons learned from the story of Esther, and these are lessons, brethren, that are for us, for God's people today. Lessons that are very applicable to us. Let's look at Proverbs 1. We'll come back to Esther here in just a second, but take a look at Proverbs 1. One thing that I've seen in my own life, one thing that I've seen in in others in the church and out of the church, when we get sideways spiritually, uh, pride is such a damaging A damaging trait. Pride is what destroyed Haman. Pride destroyed Haman in so many different aspects. And the point is this, the the certain demise of those who are prideful. It will happen. It it happens to us as God's people. We let a little bit of pride uh, sneak in, and any time in my life, the few successes I've had, and I let a little pride uh, st- uh, st- step in there. I just get whacked, and it's it, God gently whacks me. Sometimes He's whacked me a little bit harder uh, than than others. But uh, but it is a it is also a, a if I could say this a natural spiritual process because it is so contrary to god's spirit and how god's spirit works in us that it's naturally if i can say it that way it's naturally going to play out horribly for us Uh, and in this case his pride was also tied with power coveting power coveting coveting, uh, notoriety any type of 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 coveting of of anything that, that brings itself into a state of pride is, is so damaging, and it will always result in demise uh, from, from areas where it is not turned. So let's look here, speaking of this, and I know that none of us, uh, I hope at least in this congregation, that none of us is lying in wait to, to slay people, <laughs> to, to, uh, uh, to shed blood, but metaphorically, as we read Proverbs 1.16, I think have there been times when you want to see somebody go down hard, when we want to see ourselves elevate above somebody else or, or, or have a sense of pridefulness that, that sneaks in and we begin to envision ourselves uh, better or, or want what somebody else has and, and just shift out of that position instead of uh, in humility, uh, esteeming others higher than ourselves. Proverbs 1 verse 16, for their feet, he says says in verse 15, keep your feet from their path. Don't go down that path. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird because they, they don't realize that what they're actually doing by having that mindset of, of doing evil towards others and, and, and wickedness towards others, the, the, the giving in to uh, the greed of, of, of these kinds of things, we, the person doesn't realize that, that he or she's lying in wait for his, his or her own blood. It's going to turn on them. They're lurking about secretly, thinking, I can get in here and do this and, and cause this to happen. And they're, they're lurking secretly for their own lives. It's actually going to turn on them. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. So he, 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 he extends that out beyond just a, a situation of a, a person who's lying in wait for blood, but to a, a thing of greedy for gain, ooh that, that stings a little bit. Are, are there areas in my life, areas in any of our lives here where there is a bit of greed for some type of gain? where is it notoriety, influence, power, authority, riches, uh, uh, sexual uh, temptations, uh, uh, things where just you know gluttony, any of any of those kinds of areas that that there is a greed for for gain, for getting something, for, for self, for for possession, not working hard for our labors that we can give to others and serve as Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4 talks about, but this wanting for gain. It, it is that way we, we end up lying in wait for our own blood. We, we, we lurk secretly for our own lives if we do that. It takes away the life of its owners. It just saps the life right out of us. Uh, so, it's important for us as God's people to, to pull back sometimes and check that, that pride level uh, and, and that ranking of level uh, level that we see can happen in our lives. You know, I, I kind of feel like I got, I got a handle on that, and then it'll just kind of sneak up once in a while. I think, why is that? Why is that? It's, it's human nature. It's there, but it always has a certain demise attached to it. What did it do to Haman? It drove him to choose a vicious act against, against a whole nation of people, not just to take out, Haman, uh, not just take out Mordecai. I'm going to take them all out. Uh, that, that was one. It blinded him also. He was so caught up in that that it blinded him to, to what was going around. He began to create his own vision of himself and, and everything around to where I see it all and he didn't even realize. Here, here, he was so self-consumed that he didn't even see it coming with Mordecai's praise. Didn't see it at all. Can do that with us. And it not only impacted him, but it influenced those with whom he was connected. It says uh, that, his, that his 10 sons, uh, I think it was his 10 sons died as a result of it as well. Also, there's a, another uh, subtle lesson. Let's turn to Esther again. Esther 7, verse 8. I've seen this play out uh, in... in uh, back in my previous life when I was a principal to a school district, in, in school discipline situations with kids uh, sometimes, uh, in other examples, in, in situations where people are not living as they ought, uh, people that know better are, are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, Do you ever think about how interesting it was what triggered the death penalty for, for Haman? Let, 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 let's look at this. We, we read over it pretty quickly. But so here, here the king was angry as he arose in his wrath in verse 7. But verse 8, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place uh, of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch, as we had read, where Esther was. So here he was, uh, was you know, it, it, it kind of insinuates here that the king comes in and sees him and thinks he's trying to make the moves on, uh, on, on his own wife, on, on Esther. Was that what he was doing? No, he, he knew he was. It was. It was going to be very bad for him. So he comes as, as the king goes out. He's thinking, okay, she's got incredible influence. She uh, can have. Uh, you know, he was willing to give her up to half the kingdom. So I'm going to appeal to her and plead for my life for her. And then what happens? He gets. He gets misinterpreted, doesn't he? But. But that's that's the, the lesson in this thing of of being caught up in our pride and our power and, and acting in wicked ways. It's it's odd to me, it's uncanny how individuals who are caught up in all of those kinds of things, how when what it what sometimes happens in their downfall, it could be triggered by an injustice done against them. You ever seen that happen where, where, you know, they say, well, it's not fair, it's not fair. Well, was it fair here? No, it wasn't fair. He was misjudged. He was pleading with Esther, but the king saw that, uh, that he might be, you know, he's coming right up into her space and he may be making the moves on her or whatever. It's just bizarre to the king, and that's what ends up getting him killed. Uh, so it, it's that kind of thing where if you live in that kind of world and doing injustices and wickedness and and... And, and wrongs and this and that it's it's uncanny I just say from experience it's it's uncanny seeing the number of times that that's what ends up taking that person out something to think about versus saying I'm going to I'm going to walk in the light I'm going to walk in the light I'm going to strive to obey God fully I'm going to strive to be transparent I'm not going to lurk secretly in hidden in a hidden way I'm going to strive to serve God fully and openly uh, because these things tend to happen. So uh, with that, then let's look at our, uh, our, our second lesson. So pride, pride kills. Pride kills spiritually. Pride uh, destroys everything. Second half of Esther 4, this key passage. Second, pa- uh, second half here, uh, Exodus four ber- verse 14. We've heard messages on this before, but this story especially speaks to this in aspects of our lives. He says, yet who knows, as he's talking to to Esther, you're in this role now as Queen Esther. Who knows uh, whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this, Who knows that you're being chosen and and worked through and God showing you favor and all of that was for a purpose to bring you to this exact moment now. Have you thought about it that that way, Esther? That, that, That everything that God has blessed you with all the way through comes to this pivot point. This is the key point in your life. God's brought and done all of these things for right here. So you better make the right decision. How many of you have had those uh, what we would call significant emotional events where maybe not at the exact time of it, but then looking back maybe weeks later or, or, or months later or even years later, looking back to a certain event in your life where that was a, a, a hinge point, that was a turning point, that was a pivot point in needing to make that right decision? And I, and I have... I have uh, Situations that in my life where I think I chose wisely there, and as a result, it took my my life and it, it took the the, the life of, of those who surround me in a direction that was very positive. And I've, I've got to admit as well there were there were significant emotional events in my in my life where I made the the wrong the wrong decision. Uh, and had to repent of that, and, and God forgave me and was merciful uh, to me in that, but I still deal with the consequences of those actions. But still, we will have these significant emotional events in our lives, these, these crucial, critical points. Uh, I could be killed right there on the spot if I go before the king, and he doesn't accept me. That, that's a significant emotional event that she was experiencing, and yet she did the right thing, uh, Esther chose wisely. Uh, What helped her choose wisely? Well, several factors. She was humble. She saw how God had brought her favor. She was kind and she was teachable. It talks about how she grew in in the favor of of those those around her. Uh, she was advisable, as uh, again, kind, teachable, and advisable, as uh, Esther 2.15 says, the, the favor that she experienced. She surrounded herself with wise counsel. She didn't just make this decision and go. She, she received the counsel of Mordecai, and that was wise counsel. She didn't seek foolish counsel. She sought wise counsel. And she was living appropriately. The little decisions that we make in life—we know this, brethren—but it's so true. The little decisions that we make in this life, the right little decisions that we strive to continue to make, they lead us to making the good, right decisions in the big decisions in our lives. Lives, our lives are not the Anakin Skywalker story. You know that—that's not—that's not real. Uh, I I turn to the dark side and I get darker and darker and I have more and more power and I'm more and more ruthless and and I go darker and darker and darker and at the very end I'm going to turn and and do what's right and it's all great. Uh, It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way for for God's people. Uh, We are... We are to walk in the light, the, the faithful, uh, faithful down through the ages. And, and we, we sin, we stumble, we trip, but we get back up with God's help and we go forward. Uh, the little decisions that that path uh, leads to making good right spiritual big decisions let's look at another uh, another lesson here in the same verse one verse uh, an aspect of verse 14 that we can sometimes overlook if we're not careful and it's actually in the first part of the verse exodus 4 verse 4, 14 exodus 4 verse 14 he says for if you remain completely silent at this time notice what mordecai says Release, uh, relief and deliverance will come, relief and deliverance will come, uh, will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai looked at the people of God, uh, the Jews at the time that were there, and he said, you know, he's saying in a sense, God, God will work this out. God, I have confidence and faith and assurance that God will not destroy us uh, and obliterate us. I, I believe he will intervene for us. Uh, I would Assumed that he probably has had read uh, those uh, several of the of the prophecies of, in the Minor Prophets of of the remnant and and here and there the, the remnant of their people being saved over time. He it's it's going to arise. One of the things that that what what we're getting at with this third third point is that God's determined will will be will be accomplished. Mordecai had a faith and a confidence that that it will get taken care of, but. Uh, you know, from the, from the standpoint of, uh, of, you know, the whole thing with the, the Matthew 3, 9, I, I, God can raise up stones. He can raise up deliverance uh, for, for the Jews. He, he could take care of it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, also understanding, as we understand as a church, the gates of the grave are not going to prevail over the church. God is going to keep that going. No matter what you do, Esther, No matter what you do, no matter what I do, put our name in that. God's God's will is going to take place. It is going to be accomplished. He doesn't, quote, need me. He doesn't need you, Esther, to do this. But he's given you this opportunity. And who knows, Esther, whether he's put you right here, right now giving you the opportunity to fulfill his preferential will for you. But you've got to choose, Esther, just like you and I. We have to choose. We know God's preferential will for us, what he wants from us. We know what his predetermined will is. We have the opportunity as God's people, and we are as God's people, striving to get in line with God's determined will and say, I have been called for such a time as this. He has treasured me and valued me, and he's put me in the place uh, to to be here, to serve in this capacity, in the body of Christ, all of us at this time, and I will submit to that. I will go forward with that. Uh, It's still up to us to choose whether or not we are going to do it. That falls on your head, and that falls on my head. But know this, God is greater than you. God is greater than I am. And God will cause to come to pass what he wants to come to pass. God's able to work through the events that, uh, that to cause the outcome that he desires to be fulfilled. If all the Jews had been wiped out, uh, promises to Abraham, Judah, Benjamin, Shiloh, Christ to come, who, who came from, from that line, all of that. God, God had that in place. He was going to make it happen. But are you, Esther... Are you willing to get in line with his will? Or are we gonna fight against that? Are we gonna run away as Jonah did? Or or, or are we going to stay in line with his will? A fourth point and a final point. Let's go to 1 Peter 3. This is uh, the story of a woman. Not as many stories of women are there in the Bible. But this is a story of a woman today, a, a very brave woman whom God caused to have favor, who yielded herself to God, who fulfilled her her role as as a woman and as a queen uh, before her husband, the king. And we read this uh, familiar passage in 1 Peter 3. You know, there's a lesson here for, for the ladies in our congregation. There's a lesson here for the men in this congregation. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they may, without a word, be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of fine apparel. You know, I I think of... uh, I think of Esther and we think was there more uh, a more beautiful woman in the land at that time was she not given fine apparel was she not given myrrh for 6 months perfume for 6 months uh, no more beautiful woman in the land incredible outward beauty and I think it's fascinating what 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 Josephus said if this if this was in fact that uh, the truth that she she fasted for her to appear before the king as even more beautiful than she's ever been thought of by him before. Was that a vanity thing? Was that a a, a conceited thing? I want him to really think I've got it going on in terms of beauty. Uh, It was all for the purpose. It was all for the purpose of being able to have favor in his sight so that the good of, of her people and the good of people beyond just her own uh, individual needs could be met. Very incredible uh, depth uh, of beauty there. So even, even her own beauty she asked uh, to be used for this better purpose. And this better purpose revealed her her hidden heart. Her hidden heart, the heart that God sees, is incredibly beautiful. Verse 4, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times the holy women uh, who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed the Lord calling him Lord whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. As God looks at all of us, his church, we are the bride of Christ. As he looks upon each of us, men and women, does he see us uh, not for our, our outward beauty But does he see where God sees and when he sees and looks in to to our lives? Does he see that that hidden person of the heart? Does he see each of us as the bride developing the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty of of a quiet and precious spirit? It is a a beautiful thing to behold. And and one element uh, connected with that, you know, and I, again, I, I'm going to kind of go off off not off track, but just an, an aside that I've, I've thought about uh, in in marriage itself, and and in talking with, with ladies over the years and counseling in different situations. It's funny how uh, with 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 many uh, ladies as they age, you know, they they look at themselves in the mirror and they say, you know, I I I do not have that beauty that I once had I am I'm I'm growing old and the wrinkles are coming and I've got wrinkles in different places where I didn't before and and here you know you read a thing like this with with Esther and she's just everything is beautiful everything is perfect and and yeah I, I read I read this passage here of the the incorruptible beauty of the heart and okay I get that but so much of society so much is on the outward physical uh, uh uh, of, of what a, a person is, and that's true beauty. And, and we, it, can, it can be troubling sometimes to wives as, as they age uh, in thinking that I, I don't have that appeal that I once, once had. I, ladies, I, I want to tell you this because I think I speak for the husbands here. I know that I find my wife more attractive than she's ever been she is more beautiful and more beautiful as I know her. I, and, and it's not that thing of, okay, well, well. it's her hidden heart. That's, what, that's what's so beautiful. It is. It is. She has a beautiful hidden person of the heart, but she also has an outward beauty. And the way those two mix... Uh, Ladies, understand that your husbands find you more and more attractive as, as life goes on. It's, and, and women say, I, I, okay, I think I, I, no, no, that's not, it can't be, uh, but it is. It is, it is a reality of the connection that a husband has with his wife and the wife with her husband as they grow together and as they grow together spiritually, that beauty in that attraction remains. It is something for which women, and I ask women here in the congregation to embrace, embrace that, embrace that, embrace the love that your husband has for you in every way. Well, what is truly important? Is it our outward beauty? Outward beauty is everything in today's society. But it is the inner beauty, and the inner beauty impacts the outer beauty, and they all, they all fit together. Let's go back to Esther, Esther 4. Esther 4. Esther 4 verse 15, another thing that I, I found interesting, don't usually pick up on this, but, but Mordecai, you know, had been the, the person who was advising her, and he did, but when, when Mordecai saw that God was clearly guiding her, he recognized as well her role and her authority as, as queen, and, and she then enacted a command that she could as queen to Mordecai to do what he needed to do. So uh, Esther, as we see in verse 15, she told them to reply to Mordecai. So Mordecai, this is what I want you to do. Verse 17, Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So uh, again, a a very powerful example of of Mordecai's degree of, of, of recognizing her power and her authority, especially as it was directed in a right and godly manner. The entire story centers on the demonstration of Esther's inner beauty, her strength of character, her courage, her resolve, her selflessness in laying down her life. God looks on the heart even though she was recognized as the most beautiful woman in the Persian kingdom. There are many other lessons that we could, we could draw. Uh, Christ looks on the heart. God loves us as, as Christ loves us as God loves us. Uh, Christ looks on the church and looks on our heart, as we said. But let's, uh, let's turn finally today to Second Thessalonians 1 as we wrap this up and, and think about our role In God's church, our role in his plan. You know, Mordecai himself uh, exhibited incredible humility and selflessness. The very end of the book of Esther talks about uh, all that he did in, in service to his people and, again, the rejoicing that happened when the righteous ruled. Well, Esther had her trial, and she had challenges. We have our trials, and we have our temptations we're moving forward. We're moving forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Feast of Trumpets pictures that. Do you and I not believe that things are going to get rougher? (laughs) Things are going to get rougher. Things are going to get tougher. Things are going to, we're going to have more and more of what we would call significant emotional events, turning points in where will we stand, the little things lead up to being able to make those those right decisions. But God is with us. God will bring us there as we selflessly lead lives that get in line with his determined will. Let's finish in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. As we think about our national holiday tomorrow, all that it pictures, all that Mr. Bennett talked about, the, the ultimate deliverance, as the Day of Atonement and the the fall holy day season, pictures, the freedom, the liberation. As we look towards our day of liberation, total liberation, being liberated from this physical body and, and being brought into God's very family as spirit beings. Let's reflect on Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. Paul says, We're bound to, to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. And that is such a neat thing to see when, when that's going on in, in the church. It goes on here, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience, for your faith in all your persecutions and, and tribulations and afflictions that you endure which is plain evidence, it's, it's manifest evidence, evidence. It's, it's seen evidence, it's witnessed evidence of, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, just like Haman, it will happen to those who trouble the people of God down the stretch as Jesus Christ returns and defeats the armies of Satan." and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction, not uh, suffering for everlasting, but destruction with with an everlasting uh, finish. From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling, of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power that the name of, Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ.